Do you want to just sit here and try and cry right now? Um, I could try. Uh, all right, hold on. Hold on. I'll, I'll legitimately try. Okay. No, I got nothing. I was just thinking about how weird my job is. <laughs> From Gimlet Media, I'm Rachel Ward, and this is Surprisingly Awesome. And today, I have a guest host with me. And when you ask him who he is, this is how he answers. Literally, just Tim Manley? Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> you you totally just told me who you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm a writer, and uh, I make a, I never know how to define what I do. This is also Tim Manley. A couple weeks ago, I was literally just talking to a friend about how cute baby goats are. Because I was just like, I can't, I can't believe how cute they are. I held one once. Oh my God. I held it and it just went, eh. I shattered. I don't know how I'm still walking. I don't know how I'm still alive right now. Now live in studio with me, Tim Manley. Is this an accurate representation of you? Uh, I guess, if you say so, I guess it is, right? <laughs> I mean, I am sort of always having an existential crisis, and I do really love adorable baby animals. You're also a storyteller, you're an actor, and you've just released a web series called The Feels. So based on that, I think you are the perfect co-host for today's topic, which is crying. Do you want to tell people why? Um, I identify as an extremely emotional person. I think what I mean by that is that I can kind of fall in love with and have my heart broken by most moments of my life. But here's the funny thing. I identify as a really emotional person, but I can't cry. I almost never cry. Okay, I will cry if uh, if a family member gets sick. Like, I'm not a sociopath. I'll cry. That's deeply upsetting, and that'll come all of a sudden. But if just something really nice is happening mm-hmm. and I really love what's happening or if I'm just kind of sad because something sad has happened, I'll feel it coming. Mm-hmm. I'll feel like a lot happening in my face and my eyes, but then nothing comes out. I don't get the gold standard tear. What's a gold standard tear here? You know, it's your eyes get glossy and then it starts to come out and then it falls down the cheek. <laughs> I think the cheek is the cheek is the gold standard. So you want to have this gold standard tear. Um, you'd probably be into like sobbing too, right? I would love to sob. But you're not getting there Almost from like never. regular no. stimuli. No, only when my grandma died. And you can only have that happen so many times. Twice. Twice. <laughs> Unless you have a non-traditional family. But my family is pretty traditional. When did you realize this was happening? That's a really good question. Or not happening. Last year, on my 30th birthday, mm-hmm. my family threw a surprise party for me, and I came in, and I saw all these people who I loved, and they yelled surprise to me and then wished me a happy birthday, and it was the most beautiful thing ever, and I just kind of stared at them. And I could, like, I, I wanted to cry, kind of because it was I was so moved, and also because I wanted to show them, like, I'm very moved by you what you did. Communicate. Yeah. yeah, and instead I just kind of stared at them, and then I was like, ah, this is not, this is very nice. Um, thank you. Would anyone like a drink? (laughs) Were you able to cry ever? I think I used to be more comfortable 
expressing my emotions in tears and stuff until I realized I was attracted to guys and I came out as as queer or bi, whichever word works for you. And at that point, I, th- I think I got less comfortable with it because I was sort of like, I'm already not being the traditional idea of masculinity enough. Like, I'm a- I feel like I could either kiss guys or I could cry. But, like, I can't do both. I'm already really skinny and I'm going to hold hands with a guy and I'm going to cry. <laughs> like, I've really got to draw the line somewhere. And apparently I drew the line at crying. Apparently it was like I had to hold on to one last shred of my traditional weird ideas of masculinity. I held on to like I'm not going to cry. I don't want to hold on to that. Yeah, do you feel like you need to cry? I don't know. What do you think you're missing out on? Okay, part of what I am wondering is should I cry? Should I be crying? Is it great? or is I don't know. Maybe it's great that I don't. I, I don't know. Um, I feel like by not crying, it means I'm not fully emotionally present in my life. Yeah. It feels like I'm not letting moments flow through me. Like they flow and then they hit this wall and then I go, uh, uh, this, I, uh, I'm feeling a lot. (laughs) And then you just say, I'm feeling a lot. And then I just say, I'm feeling a lot, which generally no one knows how to reply to. Right. It is so bonkers to me that the king of feelings <laughs> doesn't cry. And when you told me that, it sent us both on this journey of figuring out why is it so hard for you to cry? Why is it hard for people in general to cry? Like, do we even need to cry? I kind of wish I was still seeing my old therapist because, like, that guy could tell me why it's hard for me to cry. He can also fact check this idea that you basically don't cry for us. It's, I bet he's seen like everyone cry. What's his name? Uh, Dr. Todd Bresnick. Okay, let's go. Wait, what? Yeah, we're going right now. Oh God. Hey. Hello. How are you? Very good. How are you guys? It's really, really nice good. to see you. Yeah. So right out of the gate, my very first question for Todd is: Do you think that you've ever seen Tim cry? As I look back, I'm trying to remember. I saw him very emotional. But I'm trying to remember, like, did he technically cry or not? I'm not sure. I had to think about it for a minute. I do remember, I remember, I remember at least that I reached for the box of tissues that was always there. <laughs> so Todd backed you up. Not even a licensed therapist can get you to cry. But he can get in your head. So he worked his magic and he got you talking about why it is that you don't cry. So I think in general... Um, I am someone that even though I can talk about a lot of these things, and I, t- I talk on stage very publicly about very personal <laughs> things, um, but to actually go to the place um, where you feel them or yeah, relive certain things is especially challenging to do in front of someone else. Todd says that unnamed fear you have comes down to just being scared of being exposed or an outcast. You know, there's... In some circles, it's encouraged. It's great that men cry. But then in some circles, it's still, oh, great that men cry, but hmm, not really. What do you think it means that Tim feels like he doesn't cry? Well, there are probably a few factors. When difficult things happen to us, and sometimes the emotions are so strong and traumas, big or small, it's, it's difficult for us to, it's sometimes difficult for us to revisit them so fully, 
what do I really fear could happen? It's not like I'm going to start to cry and someone will punch me in the face. You know, like it's not, I don't really know what the fear would be. Um, but for some reason, it's the, the fear that it wouldn't be okay with someone else. Or with me, really, really the real fear would probably be just that I would beat myself up about it a lot afterwards, right? Um, yeah. So as we were leaving the office, I was kind of like rubbing my hands together and like licking my radio producer chops. Because in my head, I was like, we have to find a place to go record because Tim is totally going to cry right now. I really thought we had it. But you didn't cry. There's like five gates between what's inside of me and what gets to the outside. And you got to know the password for each gate. And they change the passwords very frequently. And they're case sensitive. Who knows those passwords? Um, I don't know if anyone does. I'm trying to learn them. I'm trying to hack myself. I'm trying to hack into the mainframe of my heart. And release, I need to release all my heart's emails. Okay, so you got your proof that I don't really ever cry. I got my answer of why I don't cry, but I still don't really know. Like, do I need to cry? Like, what even are tears? Well, basically the lacrimal gland, which is the gland that releases tears, uh, releases an aqueous or watery substance, simply all of a sudden the, the um, liquid rises to the surface and then when you blink, the tear falls down your face. This is Karen Quigley. She is a psychophysiologist at Northeastern University. We know sometimes people report being sad when they've um, had tears drip down their face or, or water sort of fill their eyes. Um, sometimes people are feeling happy. Sometimes people are feeling nostalgic. So uh, tears do not really go with any specific emotion. They mean different things to different people at different times. I love the tonal shift from Todd to Karen. Todd's like, tell me about your feelings. And Karen is like, your feelings are self-reported. We can't really trust them in a lab setting. But Karen's point about tears meaning different things, that's actually a really important point. So, for example, Karen cries at something really specific. For me, you play the Star Spangled Banner. Especially if I sing with it, I just hardly can get through it without tears coming down, which, of course, is highly embarrassing to me. Um, everybody has their thing that kind of unlocks that. But I don't cry in, in circumstances that other people would be highly likely to cry in. So I think we're just all very different in terms of what turns that, I'm going to use the word switch, but I mean that very metaphorically, not in any physical sense, what turns that switch on. Other than flushing the eyes, is there a physiological uh, reason that humans cry? We, we simply don't know. Unfortunately, it's extremely hard to use the scientific method to test many of the speculations. And actually, Karen says, as long as you can deal with your emotions in some way, it doesn't matter if an aqueous substance actually comes out of your eye holes. So maybe we should just leave Tim alone, because we don't know why humans cry. You know, as long as he feels like he has a way to express his emotions, uh, if, if the expression of those leads to a release of tension or uh, makes him feel better, it's simply one of many ways you can express your emotions. So, Tim, we're done. What? We're done. You, like, that's the deal. You, you do not need to break into your heart bunker or figure out any secret passcodes. You don't actually need to cry. No? No. No, I disagree. This mission is not over. Why? Because 
Maybe we don't know why humans physically need to cry, but there must be like a cultural reason why it's happening, and I want to know what that is. Only problem is it's not like there are any like crying experts or anything like that. Mm, or are there? It's basically a very uh, interdisciplinary uh, field, but uh, <laughs> it, it's really uh, an elected uh, area. I, I'm I'm really I'm very lonely as a crime researcher. <laughs> this is Ott Fingerhoots at the University of Tilburg in the Netherlands, and he studies the psychology of emotions. As a kind of a hobby, I also became interested in the area of crying and. Uh, in the last years, I more and more work uh, specifically on, on that topic. And I just love that as a hobby, you started researching crying. Ott might feel lonely in that there aren't a lot of self-declared crying researchers, but he worked on this hugely collaborative study about crying. So researchers interviewed people in 37 countries about the last time they cried, time of day, who was there, where they were. And here's what they found. People typically cry between 6 and 11 p.m. at home. And... People in colder climates cried more frequently than those in warm climates, which is almost like sadder to imagine. Like people are holed up alone in this dark apartment because it gets darker earlier further up north. They're just crying and like there's this real sad snowman outside. So another part of Ott's research is looking at different types of crying. So here's the deal. There are three types of tear production. Basal tears are just like blinking. That's to keep your eyes wet. Reflexive tears happen when you're responding to an irritant, like when you cut an onion. And then there are emotional tears, tears that come from feelings, tears that are meant to communicate something to the people around you. Emotional tears are what Ott studies and what I want. And he breaks those down into another three categories. Most important, I think, are what I would call the uh, the distress tears. So someone is in either physical pain or psychological pain due to the loss of someone or, um, or homesickness and so on. So that's a pretty basic type of tear. Tim, you said the last time you really remember crying was when your grandmother died. Truth. She was a good Catholic who worked at Planned Parenthood and dressed as a pimp for Halloween. I would be really sad to see that person go also. Um, but so what you were experiencing in that moment was distress tears. Have you ever, like, stubbed your toe really badly and cried? Nope, but one time I did with a bee sting. <laughs> okay, so you probably had distress tears then, too. And then you have the what I tend to call the uh, sympathy or empathic tears. So you, you cry not because of your own suffering, but, but because you witness the suffering of a friend or uh, another uh, individual. Tim, do you cry when you find out that somebody's dog is sick? Uh, no, but I'll feel bad. This is where you're starting to break down. You've got those basic uh, distressed tears, but you're not so much with the empathic tears, which makes me think that you are not going to be doing this next type of crying. There are also the tears shed because, well, you witness a moral act, an, an altruistic act, uh, self-sacrifice, that, that kind of uh, things. Tim, have you ever cried singing the national anthem? No. Did you cry at Titanic? Negative. Do you cry when you see a fireman jump out of his fire truck to help a little old lady cross the street, and then out of gratitude she invites him over for dinner and they bond? Uh, no, but that sounds really nice. I don't know that that's actually ever happened, 
but it would be a really good commercial for insurance. And it's also a, an example of what Ott calls moral tears. So you have distressed tears, empathic tears, and moral tears. So the question why humans cry, first there is the interpersonal function. So it's an important, a strong signal to others that help me, I need you. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, we have also some preliminary evidence that uh, indeed crying can make you feel better when you are in uh, distress and so that it can help to restore and to refine your emotional balance. Do you think that crying heightens or, or deepens your experience of your life? Is it an essential part of your life? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really think that that's the case. It's it gives more depth to your experiences. And, and uh, yeah, and I have the, that it, it makes me feel that life is meaningful. It, it's, uh, yeah. I also, I also, I want to I live the way that you live. It sounds nice. When I heard Ott say this, it was like this moment for me when I decided I really wanted to cry. Like, it's important for me to do it. But now the problem is, I don't really know how. Like, how do you actually cry? I have thoughts about this. But I won't tell them to you until after the break. Rude. Welcome back to Surprisingly Awesome. I'm Rachel Ward, and my guest host today is... Tim Manley, and we're talking about crying. Yes, so right before the break, we had just sort of tumbled to this idea that you actually want to cry. And so I have an idea about how to make that happen. You remember Karen Quigley, the um, researcher who cries over the national anthem? I do. I have had a similar experience, uh, but what makes me cry is old union songs. So (laughs) there's this Utah Phillips album, and I remember like, listening to it and just weeping over all of these like old songs about workers rights and solidarity (laughs) when the union's inspiration through the workers blood shall run there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one but the union makes us strong Oh, yeah. I guess I've done something similar. Uh, I have this playlist of songs that I literally just call Vulnerable. And it's songs I listen to when I want to let myself be in a sad place. So I think if you want to unlock these emotional gates, music might be the password. So let's go talk to Ed Large, that is his real name, at the University of Connecticut's Music Dynamics Laboratory. I study the brain, and I look at uh, how the brain responds to music. This is your brain on classical, and this is your brain on Radiohead. So if I ran into you at a concert, what kind of concert would it be? You might see me at a bluegrass concert or a rock and roll concert, mm-hmm. a classical music concert. I like all different kinds of music. Is some music sad and other music is not sad? Uh, I think that's fair to say. And what makes sad music sad? Uh, Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, That's all? Well, shoot, we could probably find that. (laughs) (laughs) $64 million? So uh, the the short answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows what makes sad music sad, what makes happy music happy. 
we can look at music that people rate as happy or music that people rate as sad. Um, and then we can look at the attributes that music has. For example, songs that have major chords like this are generally happier songs than songs that have minor chords like this. Those tend to be sad. Slower songs are also sadder. When you listen to music, the first thing that happens um, is that the music resonates your cochlea. And here's what Ed told us. That that music that's happening outside in the real world, it's got a waveform. You know, music is a wave. And your brain also has waves. Those are brain waves. And when music passes through your ear into your auditory system... Your brain is literally synchronizing with that sound. It's resonating to that sound. The waves in your brain actually sync up with the waves of the music. So a really simple wave would be like just a clap. That would just be one spike up and down. And that sound, that picture of sound from the outside world actually gets replicated in your brain. So you have the same up and down spike in your brain after hearing that sound. And we can take a picture of a brain with a brain scanner. And then we can take that picture and then play that picture back. We can play back the wave that came from your brain. So here's an example. We got this audio that we're about to play for you from Nina Krauss at the Auditory Neuroscience Laboratory at Northwestern. So audio from the outside world, hits your ear, goes into your brain, and your brain does the synchronization thing. We can take a picture of that and then play back that picture using software. So here's a piece of audio that is a synchronized brain. Let me play it for you one more time. You guys are getting this, right? It's this song. Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. So in a way, music can actually control your brain. I knew it. I knew I could catch feelings from music. So, Tim, this is it. This is how we're going to make you catch feelings. We are going to use music to make you cry. I guess I'm a little bit curious from your point of view what's going on in, in a brain when somebody is crying. Um, because that's this episode is about crying. Uh-huh. We are, in fact, going to try to make my co-host cry. That's an experiment. That's okay. I mean, we have not talked to any review boards about this. It's uh-huh. purely unethical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be, actually. Okay. So we're going to do this to Tim in like an hour. Oh, really? What do you? How do you think we should deploy what we've learned from you? You know, when um, music therapists use music to try and, you know, rehabilitate people, you know, with Parkinson's disease or stroke or something, they always look at the music that that person would have been listening to when they were, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. Hmm. The nostalgia element is a big one. I don't think you can discount that. Hmm. But it's got to be the right kind of nostalgia. Yeah. I think we could work the mom angle. He really loves his mom. A sad song that he would have been listening to when he was 18, 19 years old that his mom also loved. What's the song that reminds you of your mom? Oh, um... She used to like, um, uh, who's, who is it that did um, uh, Out of Space? Uh, the organ player. Oh, what the heck is his name? Billy Preston. That's the one, yeah. This is great. Oh, man. I don't know that Tim would respond to this, but, like, this is a great thing to know about you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever need to make me cry in an experiment, you know where to go. 
but we are not trying to make Ed Large cry. <laughs> we are trying to make you cry, Tim. So I have designed a study, and I actually am going to present it to a review board. It's a review board of one, but let's do a roll call on our review board. My name is Matthew. I'm the lead audio engineer at Gimlet Media. But you also go by Matt Bowl. That's what I call you. So we are going to sit Tim Manley down for an experiment. And I've built three hypotheses. And the fancy science way of referring to those hypotheses is as an H. So H1, H2, H3. So the first question, H1, is will the act of singing a sad, nostalgic song make Tim cry? And my hypothesis is that it will not work. He's going to sing it. We all, well, I mean, we'll all sing it together probably, but oh, okay. we're going to kind of make him sing okay, it. Okay, okay. And then the second research question is, will someone else performing a song that mm-hmm. he has a relationship with mm-hmm. in front of him mm-hmm. make him cry? Okay. And uh, my hypothesis on that one is that it will not. I agree. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to play a song for him from a playlist that he shared with us. That's Mm -hmm. a a playlist that he had even before we started working on this episode of songs that make him feel vulnerable. Yeah. Those are great hypotheses, first of all. I feel like the combination of those might snowball him into some sort of emotion. So that's the experiment design. So you're going to hear from the review board again later. But the next step of this, of any good study, is a literature review. I have to background my subject. So Tim, it is time to spill your guts. So what was the first album you bought? The Offspring. Which one? Um, the one that had Pretty Fly for a White Guy on it. Yep. We're not friends anymore. Yeah, sorry. It's fine. I, I bought a Dave Matthews Band CD once. We've all been there. What's wrong with Dave Matthews Band? Oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any music that back in the day that really strongly resonated with you that would still be important to you today? I feel like there was a transitional moment. I don't think I like learned how to be sad till the till leaving high school and going to college, right? I loved high school. I loved growing up on Long Island. I had really close friends. I loved living at home. I loved my brothers, my mom, my whole life. Uh, I, I go to college in the city, which really is only an hour and 15 minutes away from my up. It's not that crazy. Every weekend... I would take the Long Island Railroad back out to Ronkonkoma. I would walk back to my mother's house. I'd get in my car, and I would drive around listening to this mixtape that my best friend in high school made for me and my girlfriend. And I would just sob. Specifically, when Simon and Garfunkel's America came on, I said it, I said it, I said it. America by Simon and Garfunkel. Jackpot. Okay. Okay, so we got everyone all gathered into the studio. Uh, The principal investigators in this study are me and Matt Bull. Tim, you are our participant. And my lab assistant is Christine Driscoll. She's the grad student. She's going to do all the work, and I'm going to get the Nobel. So our first hypothesis, H1, singing a sad song, a nostalgic song, as we've discovered a song about America, (laughs) will be sad, but it will not be enough to make Tim cry. All right, who's going to go first? Can I go first so I can set the key? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you can, but I legitimately don't even know what that means. <laughs> oh, the jokes are ramping up because we're afraid of crying. That's right. Okay, what if we do? Um, I think we just. I think there's no practice rounds. We just jump in. Are you? Do you guys feel ready? Sure. <laughs> Our fortunes together. 
I've got some real estate here in my bag. It took me four days to hitchhike from Saginaw. I've come to look for America. Counting the cars on the New Jersey. So, cry check. America by Simon and Garfinkel. Christine, cry? No. Me? No. Tim? No, but I wanted to. Okay, so, age one, hypothesis one, is positive. Singing a sad song does not make you cry. So, let's move on to the next step in our study, H2. And that's where we brought back Matthew Bull, Gimlet's in-house troubadour. Do I, do I need to explain anything, or, do I, or are we just going for it? Just play. After my mother, the old man is another child has grown old. If dreams were a thunder, lightning was desire, this old house would have burnt down a long time ago. Make me I'm just keep making me speechless. Cry check. Matt, did you cry at all? No, I didn't cry. I did not cry at all. Tim? I want to say, I I have not shed a tear, (laughs) but that has no relationship to everything I am feeling, which is profound and large. How often do you cry in front of other people? (laughs) (laughs) How often do I cry in front of a microphone? (laughs) Very rarely. I thought while you were singing those songs, I was like, if that light was off... Mm Um, higher chance of tears. Okay, so there you have it. H2, also positive. Seeing someone play a song does not make you cry, Tim. The last hypothesis, H3, Uh is that if we play Tim a song, now having been edged towards Mm -hmm. the edge, he might might cry. But he gave us some very helpful clues, so we're going (sighs) to lower that light. (sighs) We're just going into the dark completely. Wow. (laughs) Do you want to get under the desk? It's tempting. Is that a real offer? Yeah, you can get under the desk. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, I don't even know what we're about to do, but I'm totally psyched to lie down on the floor. (laughs) You ready, Tim? Yeah. So we've got one shot left here. It's a song, Tim, that you selected, a song that you have self-identified as the saddest song that you've ever heard. The Breeze. My Baby Cries. It's a Kath Bloom song, but the version that really gets me is Bill Callahan's. Well, my baby cries when he's tired 
puppy howls with the moon. Tim? Okay, I need a, I need a test. Hold on. It's not like a drop, but can I get, hold on, give, give me your hand. Just see. Give me your judgment here. Rachel's putting her hand on Tim's face. It's gone now. I think I just lost it. <laughs> I think I lost it. I think I had something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had one, but now I think. Wait, hold on. Go like this again. Go. Wait. I don't think that's a gold star tier, I but I think we a, got close. I'm gonna give it a bronze. <laughs> nice. I'm gonna give it a bronze, <laughs> and I want to respect what it was. I don't want to shame it because it wasn't a whole drop. Come up off the floor, Tim. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like it down here. So, Tim, you did not cry. I didn't cry. Here's the thing, Tim. I think you just have to let it ride. Remember Ott Wingerhutz, the guy who studied crying in 37 cultures? His theory is that your demographics are just working against you. I wondered, may I ask him, what's his age? I'm, uh, I'm 31. 31. Hmm. And you have children, may I ask you? I don't have children. I don't have children. Whoa. <laughs> it would be easier to make me cry <laughs> if I had children. The, yeah, we have some indication that, uh, uh, that 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 makes a difference. I believe that they are. That's the most problematic to make them cry. So. Uh, I, I'm really identifying with what you say. <laughs> I'm really hearing it. But I did have some hope for me. I just had to be patient. Personally, I think that it has more to do simply with uh, becoming an old man. <laughs> hmm. How so? Maybe it has to do with decreasing levels of testosterone. That's an explanation at one level. But on the other hand, I tend to go back to, to children and grandchildren. You, you know, if, as an infant and if a child, then you are very egocentric. Mm. When we grow older, you become aware that it's not just you, but also the well-being of others are important for you. And, and maybe via these children and grandchildren, you are, I would tend to say, more or less anchored with your genes in society. So what's going on in society becomes also very important for you and for your genes. Just kind of hearing his voice makes me feel better because it's like, I want to be like that guy, you know? And maybe it's okay if I'm not him right now because maybe I'll, I'll grow into him. His point about biology is actually this kind of nice idea that if you're crying, it's like you've made it. It's because you have stakes in the world, like your your genetics are out there. You're, you've got people that you care about who could be affected by big things in the world. I'm almost thinking of it like the, his point of view is like crying is almost a sign of wisdom. Yeah. And you can't rush it. It's like falling in love. you got to let it go at its own pace. Yeah, and then it's all over your face, and you can't hide it, and everyone sees it, and it's really embarrassing. <laughs> it's interpersonal. It happens between 6 and 11 at night. Mm. Conclusion of the study is you're too much of a kid to cry. <laughs> I want to be a tender old Dutch grandfather right now. You know there's a prerequisite to that. You have to have kids. That is the <laughs> solution to this episode, Tim. You have to go home and get some kids. Oh, all right, cool. What a what a cheap, easy solution to all my problems. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad I came to this podcast.
Our theme music is by Nicholas Bertel, and our ad music is by Build Buildings. The United States Marine Band playing the national anthem came from the Free Music Archive. We were edited this week by Annie Rose Strasser, Alex Bloomberg, and produced by Rachel Ward, Christine Driscoll, and Elizabeth Coolis. We were mixed by Andrew Dunn. And Austin Thompson. He mixed Matthew Bowles' music. Thank you to Jacob Cruz, Emma Jacobs, Tiffany Lee, Ricky Nevetsky, Ella Fetter, Melanie Crivellis, Jackie Helbert, and Joe Staples. Nina Kraus at Northwestern University sent us the Smoke on the Water music, and you can learn more about her lab at brainvolts.northwestern.edu. And thank you, Matthew Bull, for playing for us. You can hear more of him at AmericanVacation.org and follow him on Twitter at BigBearII. Plus, if you want to hear more from Tim, look for his web series, The Feels. He's posting one short, beautiful episode every day for the month of September. Feels guaranteed. Crying may very fine wherever the internet is sold. You can tweet us at at surprisingshow, email us at surprisinglyawesome at gimletmedia.com, and our Tumblr is truesharkattackstories.tumblr.com. Surprisingly Awesome is a production of Gimlet Media. Could you play us one of your songs? Um, <laughs> I hope the answer is yes. You want to hear one of my songs? This I did not. And it could prepare it, for. It I find that especially. I, I would. I would be moved to hear one of your songs. Okay.
don't need you don't need